What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. This is the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Those of you who have questions about the Catholic faith, maybe you're not quite sure how to get those questions answered. Well, guess what? We can help you. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205 271-2985. And of course, you can always shoot us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. All right, Charles Berry is our producer, Matt Kabinsky, our phone screener. Jeff Burson is handling social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there live right now. Just put your question in the comments box. Jeff will see that. He'll send it to us here in Studio One, and then we are off to the races. I'm Tom Price, along with, from the beautiful studios of Spirit Catholic Radio in Omaha, Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? I'm doing very well. How are you, my friend? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much. You had a uh, live speech last night at Siouxland Catholic Radio in Sioux City. How, how did that go? Uh, it was lovely. It was a nice group of people. I always enjoy meeting Catholic Radio listeners. And, of course, we're doing, get, doing it again tonight in, uh, in Omaha with Spirit Catholic Radio. Yes, indeed. A uh, big shout-out here to uh, Mark Voris and uh, everybody there at uh, Spirit Catholic Radio, a wonderful, wonderful EWTN radio partner. Here's an email that we received from Matthew uh, right here in Birmingham. Dr. Anders, it's been a few years since I took my Trinity class, but I am now teaching catechism. How do I explain to high schoolers that three persons do not equate to three gods? Also, how do I explain that God is not the sum of the three persons? I also think these kids are capable of understanding a lot more than some people think, but is high school too early for Augustine's De Trinitate? Again, that's from Matthew in Birmingham. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question, Matthew. So on your last question, here's what I would do. If you want to read De Trinitate and then make some notes, uh, some summaries of Augustine's arguments and illustrations, and then you explain those to the kids, I think that's probably more appropriate. Most, your your average high school kid is not going to sit down and read De Trinitate. I mean, these days they have a harder time making it through the Lord of the Rings even. So, I mean, that, that probably not going to make it through the whole De Trinitate. Yeah. Uh, in terms of what, explaining the doctrine of the Trinity to teenagers, so th- the critical distinction to make is that when we use the word person in reference to the Blessed Trinity, we mean something analogous to but not identical to what the word person means when we refer to human beings. And when we talk to human beings, we're accustomed to there being uh, a person – uh, a singular person uh, identifiable with a singular concrete entity. Um, and w- we know the difference between, say, the, the concreteness of the entity and the, and the personality of the entity. When we talk about personality, we're, we're speaking about, well, who is that? And we would talk about the, the essence of a thing. We're talking about what is it? So, you know, here's Tom Price. What is he? He's a man. Who is he? He's Tom Price. He's the program director at EWTN and facilitator for the radio show. Uh, but in, in God, we can talk about personality as a who, 
but it's that's it. When we talk about there being three persons in the Trinity, we mean there are just those three who's. There are three um, sort of interpersonal orientations, but that doesn't equate to three concrete entities, three essences. There's only one essence in three persons. Now, that's odd to us because all of our experience of persons has been one person, one essence. In God, the three persons in one essence. Um, now, the, the best analogy for the Trinity that I know of does come to us from St. Augustine in the De Trinitate, and it's where uh, Augustine compares uh, the, the tripartite personality of God uh, to the, the situation of a conscious intellect thinking itself. So if you can imagine uh, you have a, an intellect, <laughs> it's immaterial, uh, it's not reducible to any kind of material medium, and when you have an act of thought, you have the thinker, you have the object of thought, and you have the thinking itself. Well, within an intellect, if an intellect is conceiving of itself, the one doing the thinking and the one being thought and the act of thought are all essentially identical, though they differ in relation. Now, that is not a perfect analogy for the Trinity, but it's the best one that we can come up with. Okay. Well, very good, and uh, thank you so much uh, for your question. Here's one now from Barry in East Malaysia. Dr. Anders, uh, some time ago I came across a video which shows a Catholic bishop attending a Protestant healing or praise and worship rally led by a prominent pastor. So my question is, is it permissible in the first place for this Catholic bishop to join in? Would it not be a scandal, or is it okay since it promotes some sort of ecumenism? Thanks from Barry in East Malaysia. Yeah, thanks, Barry. I appreciate the question. So there's there's no objection uh, automatically to engaging in ecumenical prayer meetings, and Pope John Paul II uh, surely made a big deal of that. He himself was engaged in a lot of those kinds of uh, of those kind of interactions. Okay. Um, you know whether or not you want to participate in a particular prayer meeting would be the bishop's prudential judgment, his discretion about what is the benefit to be gained here. And what he's aiming at is to show goodwill with other people of faith, then yeah, I think that's probably um, uh, a good idea. If if there's a risk that uh, he may be misunderstood to be endorsing, you know, a particular spirituality that might not be fully Catholic, well, that's, you know, that's a risk you have to weigh. All right, very good. And one final one here from Sharon in Iowa. Do Sedeva contests have legitimate authority? If yes, what is that authority, and are they essentially Protestants? Um, right, yeah, I appreciate the question. So Sedeva contests don't have legitimate authority, and they don't have, because they don't have legitimate jurisdiction. Uh, so what do I mean by that? Well, you know, jurisdiction is the territory over which you have a legal right to govern. Uh, it's just like, you know, I live in, in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, the, the Birmingham police force has jurisdiction in the city of Birmingham. If yeah. I drive to Montgomery, Alabama, they don't have jurisdiction down there. <laughs> and we have jurisdictional boundaries within the Catholic Church, and the way they work is they're structured around the diocese, which is the jurisdiction of a bishop, and, and those that he has collaborating with him in the ministry, and those are the priests. Uh, well, these, uh, these set of acantists... Uh, bishops and priests, they have no jurisdiction because they have no diocese. They're like, someone compared them once to husbands without wives. <laughs> All right, very good. Sharon, thanks so much for your question. Hey, we've got open lo- phone lines for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. Stay with us. 
It's called a communion on this uh, Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We're going to get to the phones in just a second here. Uh, David, of course, at uh, the beautiful studios of Spirit Catholic Radio in Omaha. But he is ready to take your calls at 833-288-EWTN. Hey, there's a brand new book from EWTN Publishing I want to tell you about. 30 Marian Eucharistic Visits by Donna Marie Cooper O'Boyle. This book will inflame your heart with love for Jesus' Eucharistic heart through the heart of his mother. You'll find ways to rekindle the fire of divine love in your prayer life, and you'll grow in loving communion with our Lord in the Eucharist. You'll be inspired by moving stories of saints, including St. Faustina, the Fatima children, Pope John Paul II, and you'll learn how to apply them to your daily faith journey. What a great book this is. 30 Marian Eucharistic Visits by Donna Marie Cooper O'Boyle. Brand new book now from EWTN Publishing, available from EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic. EWTNRC.com. Before we get to the phones, uh, let's do one more email here. This one is from Zach. Dr. Anders, I hope you can help me and my wife on this matter. We have five children, and our second child, a 12-year-old girl, is quite bad. She lies without remorse. She steals, speaks horribly to me and my wife. We are actually getting her psychiatric help. My question pertains to the Eucharist. When I know my daughter is likely not to be in a state of grace, I dissuade her from going to receive communion. However, I struggle with this because I am not God, and I'm not sure that I should be judging her. Should I stop her from going to communion when I believe she's in a state of mortal sin, or is this something I should leave alone? Thanks, Zach. Yeah, Zach. Hi, I really appreciate the question. So I I don't claim to be uh, the world's greatest parenting expert, and we have people on the network who are better qualified than me to talk about childhood behavioral issues. You know, the the pop checks and Dr. Ray really is just kind of their forte. But I'll I'll take a stab at it as a Catholic parent, and and I know your question is more maybe theological than it is uh, than it is parenting. Personal judgment, personal judgment on my part. This is just my opinion. I. I, I don't ever want to be in the business of trying to evaluate my own children's fittingness for communion because I want them to develop the habit of holding themselves accountable and, and having a clear conscience before God. Okay. And if they, if they feel like I'm demanding that they outsource that work to me, um, then A, they probably won't develop that habit. And, and also I think you really risk making the question of communion bringing that into the power struggle between parents and children. Hmm. And and she's 12 now. I think what you may end up with in a, another year or two is, fine, I won't go to communion. And uh, and just a kind of uh, real antipathy towards the sacraments. And I, I don't think you want that. No, for sure. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Steve in South Florida, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Hey there, Steve. What's on your mind today, sir? Oh, all right. I have like two questions. Uh, during the pandemic, all the Catholic churches were closed down here. And I like going for a walk. So I'm walking down close to where I live, and I see one of those you know, little churches. The lights are on. I pull open the door. And there's, you know, to me, it was shocked. There's people inside, and I had a preacher there. And the preacher, I mean, I started going there on Sunday, 
And he said, we keep our doors open. He said, we believe in the blood of Jesus Christ. We'll be safe from the blood of Jesus Christ. And we're, and we're not afraid to keep our doors open during a pandemic. We don't believe we'll get it. He's going to save us. But he gave wonderful talks, right? And they were really good service. Matter of fact, I feel a little guilty I still don't go there because they were the only ones that had the courage to keep the door open when I go to the Catholic Church. So as far as that goes, what do you, I mean, isn't that the same as a Catholic Mass or even better? I thought yeah. he gave great Yeah, sure. I really appreciate the question. So, uh, from the Catholic point of view, it is not at all the same as the Catholic Mass, because, see, the essential activity at the non-denominational church you were visiting was, as you correctly mentioned, preaching. Preaching was, seemed to be the, the whole show, and that's what you were interested in, and that's what they were delivering, was a, was a, a verbal delivery, a verbal um, message. In the Catholic Church, the essential point of going to Mass is to offer the holy sacrifice of the Mass. That's when Jesus Christ becomes present on the altar, body, blood, soul, and divinity, and the whole Church offers uh, the body of Christ to God the Father in reparation for the sins of the world, and we offer ourselves along with him. You know, St. Paul tells us in Romans 12 that if we offer our bodies in living sacrifice, this is our spiritual act of worship. So it's, uh, think about the direction of the action in the worship service. In a Catholic Mass, the direction is from us to God. We're, we're offering something to God. Uh, in the Protestant service that you described, you're more like a consumer who is being uh, given a product, namely uh, maybe an inspiring message. So there's a very different logic in Catholic worship from that kind of situation. Plus the Catholic Church, the Catholic Mass is part of the church that Christ founded. This is the worship of Christ's body, the Catholic Church. And the non-denominational church, is, uh, it's a breakaway from the church that Christ founded. So it's, you don't have that full unity with the people of God that you would have in the Catholic Church. Uh, and, of course, you don't get to receive the body of Christ, uh, his soul, blood, and divinity in the Protestant church the way you do in the Catholic. So there's a very different understanding of what's going on. Um, now, let's say something about his message. So I, to begin with, to make the claim that because a person has faith in the blood of Christ— that they are not subject to disease, is uh, is manifestly false and and demonstrably false, right? I mean, uh, I guarantee you that if you if you did a health screening of the people that attended the non-denominational church, you would find a very similar rates of say cancer, heart disease, uh, liver disease, kidney disease, uh, the common cold, you name it, whatever ails the human person. I think you would probably find uh, very similar rates in those kind of churches than you would in the general population. One exception to that rule, and that is uh, that Pentecostal churches in particular tend to have higher rates of depression and anxiety. But other than that, uh, there's very little difference in, in religious communities in terms of rates of disease and illness. So, I mean, that's, it, it, it's demonstrable that believing the blood of Christ does not uh, prevent you from, from catching diseases. And to suggest that it does is really quite foolish, and you put people at grave risk. Now, maybe maybe not, not at risk of COVID, but like if they're lackadaisical about the care of their health because they have a false trust that God will necessarily prever- preserve them from disease, then you're, you're not doing them any favors. So I, I don't think that's a very good message. Um, now, when you said that the church has good messages, well, I really can't evaluate that beyond what you've told me about that one thing that he said. But there's a difference between having a compelling and interesting message and having one that genuinely meets my spiritual needs. 
Um, and, you know, the, the, the central core message of the Catholic faith is that we have to conform our lives morally to that of Jesus. That is, that is the primary work of the Christian life. How can I reform my life with the help of grace so that I become more like Christ, that I see the world through Christ's eyes, that I care for the poor and the outcasts and the marginalized, that I say no to my passions, that I develop habits of virtue? Typically, that's not the central message of most of the non-denominational churches. And while I acknowledge that they sometimes have very attractive and interesting and uh, engaging messages, they're not that. Okay. Appreciate that. Uh, Steve, thanks so much uh, for your call today. Glad to hear from you in South Florida. It's called a communion here with uh, Dr. David Anders, live from Spirit Catholic Radio in Omaha, taking your calls right now at 833-288-EWTN if you have a question about the Catholic faith. Maybe you'd like to tell us uh, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic. 833-288-3986. Alicia is a first-time caller from Abbeville, Louisiana, listening on the great Christ Our King radio. Alicia, what's on your mind today? Hey, thank you so much for taking my call. Um, I wanted to ask about, um, we have a family member that is non-denominational and so is scripture. So anything that comes to Catholicism, she asked my husband and I a few questions just to see what we believe about it. And she had said the other day, which kind of, kind of, I didn't know how to best explain it, and my husband is usually the one that explains these kind of things to her, but basically she was saying that Jesus didn't know as much as God did before he died, and I didn't want to, I didn't know how to explain it in a way that she would kind of understand it to where, as if, I don't know how to ask the question correctly, but that he didn't know as much as God did hmm. before he died. Yeah, sure. So, Thanks. I so really I appreciate the question. I think I can speak to that. So let me let me tell you what the Catholic doctrine is on uh, on the nature of Christ, and then bring that into dialogue with your with your relative. So the Catholic teaching on the nature of Christ is that Christ is a person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, um, but those natures are united in his person. So we don't have two persons stuck together. We have one person with two natures. So anything that you say about the person, right, you can say about the— anything you say about the divinity, you can say of the person. Anything you say of the humanity, you can say of the person. Uh, now, there, are, there have been people in history who have imagined that Christ is more like two people sort of stuck together, like, say, you know, the two sides of an Oreo cookie stuck together with some kind of ectoplasmic goo in the middle— and, and so you could really imagine a kind of distinction between the two where you could say something of one of them and not say it of the other. Uh, there was a famous patriarch of Constantinople named Nestorius who believed like that. And uh, so, for example, he would say that, um, that Jesus Christ was the, that Mary was the mother of Christ, but not the mother of God, because he didn't want to ascribe, you know, d- divine maternity to her. And, uh, and the church always said, no, that's wrong. That's actually quite wrong, because, because what happens is if you, can, if you can sort of break the divinity apart from the humanity like that, then, um, then Christ doesn't necessarily unite us to God, right? We may wish to unite to the humanity of Christ, um, or Jesus is a split personality or something like that. And that seems to be what your, what your relative is asserting, that, that, that the human Christ um, is uh, uh, really not God. and doesn't have the attributes of divinity like omniscience. Uh, so... You know, I would look to passages of Scripture 
that really affirm the full divinity of the person. Of course, in John chapter 1, we read about the incarnation of the Word of God, uh, who is described as the light that gives light to every man. We're talking about the universal principle of rationality coming to earth and taking on flesh. Um, that's powerful omniscience we're talking about there. Or mm. in John chapter 8, where, where Christ uh, declared before Abraham was born, I am. He, he didn't say before Abraham was born, my divine nature was. He said, I am, like the, the, the whole Christ, the person of Christ preexisting. Uh, I and the Father are one, John chapter 10. So really affirming the full divinity of Jesus. Um, now, um, uh, I've lost my train of thought. Uh-oh. I was going to say, yep, um, so... Uh, uh, oh, I remember where I was going. Thank you. Uh, so there is one sense, and this is probably the text that your friend is citing, where uh, it seems in Scripture that Jesus has limited knowledge, in particular when he speaks about uh, the, the, the day of the coming of the Son of Man, when he says no one knows this, not even the Son of Man, right? But, uh, so what do we do with that? Well, the, what the Catholic Church has traditionally done with that text is to say that as a human nature— the human nature of Christ, of course, as a human nature, mm-hmm. uh, has limitations. I mean, for one thing, is subject to death. Uh, but uh, but the, the brain of the human baby Jesus would have had infantile neurology, right? He would have undergone development, cognitive development. Um, that the human brain of Jesus uh, would have acquired knowledge in the way that any normal human brain would acquire knowledge over time. And so we can speak about a, a sense in which the human Christ didn't have an experiential, acquired human knowledge of something. But as God, he would have had omniscience at all times. Okay. Alicia, we hope that's helpful for you. Thank you so much uh, for your call today. Uh, David, you got to put on your Dutch Reformed hat right now. This is from Erica. I'm in conversation mm-hmm. with someone from the Dutch Reformed Church who has stated the first Council of Nicaea was when, quote, Lots of books and letters were declared false, irrelevant, or frauds, and that 66 books were kept, and not until a thousand thousand years later did Catholics start using those false books again. He says, this is likely where I get my notion of praying to the dead. All I know is that the council met to dispute the Arian heresy. I don't know much more than that. Any thoughts, Erica? Um, Uh, Yeah, thanks. So this is a Dutch Reformed Christian who does not study church history, I think, because that is not what the Council of Nicaea was about at all. The Mm. Council of Nicaea was primarily about the Arian heresy and defined the, the divine nature of Christ that we were just discussing. Uh, there were also some canons uh, published at the Council of uh, Nicaea that had to do with things, I mean, they were, some of them quite arcane that would be almost unintelligible to people today, but they had to do with things like the various episcopal privileges of different of different sees, um, uh, the rules for distributing communion, um, you know, whether or not you could admit someone to Holy Communion if they were excommunicated, you know, with a kind of lifelong excommunication when you could give viaticum. Uh, whether deacons could administer communion to priests. I mean, there were all kinds of rulings like that that came out of Nicaea, but the canon of the Bible wasn't one of them. Uh, it wasn't a discussion of the canon of Scripture at the Council of Nicaea. Uh, now, the, the, the allegation that the prayers to the saints somehow came out of the Council of Nicaea is just abysmally ignorant. Um, <clears throat> first of all, uh, the, the prayers to the saints was never in dispute in, in Christian antiquity. Uh, it, it's interesting, it's telling to me that there was a massive dispute in the ancient Christian world about whether or not Jesus was fully God. That question nearly split Christianity, well, it did split Christianity down the middle until it was resolved by a couple of councils. 
But one thing that no one ever disputed was that the saints are our intercessors. And we, can, we have textual and archaeological evidence of early devotion to the saints going back to the tail end of the first century. Erica, thanks so much uh, for your email. Hey, we've got open lines for you right now. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's called Communion Live from Spirit Catholic Radio in Omaha today with Dr. David Anders on EWTN. Hey, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Let's talk about that here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. He is live at the studios of Spirit Catholic Radio in Omaha. Thanks to those good folks there. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Let's go now to Mike in St. Louis listening on the Great Covenant Network. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, gentlemen. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I, I just wanted to ask, ask, ask the doctor, um, all my wife ever wanted me to do was get become drug-free, get clean, uh, become a Catholic, live a good Christian life, and I have been clean since April of this year, and uh, I have no desire, I, I haven't, and by the grace of God, I've had no desire to take any more type of drugs that doesn't even, I don't even think about it. Praise God. Um, thank you, and absolutely praise the Lord. And um, the more I become and put all my faith in Christ and take the steps in the Catholic Church and listen to Christian radio, and um, I'm a big Post Malone fan, I can't listen to any of the CDs anymore because he uses too much vulgar language, and my wife thinks, what's wrong with you? Well, what's wrong with me? Listen to the way you talk. So um, the, well, my, my bottom line is... the. The, the better that I become with myself and my soul and wash myself clean, the more resistance I'm getting from my wife. And I just don't understand it, gentlemen, and I was just hoping I could hang up and listen to you give me some advice. Yeah, thanks, Mike. I really appreciate the question. And um, first of all, congratulations on your sobriety. That is just absolutely wonderful. Yes. That, that makes me really, really happy to hear that. Uh, and I'm also very sorry to hear about your marital difficulties and I, you know, I've said this many times on the show. I'm, I'm not a counselor. I'm not a marriage therapist. Um, you know, I'm just a little old theologian who, you know, likes to talk about the Catholic faith. So I'll do the best I can. But there are also others on the network who are a little bit more skilled at the relationship stuff than I am. But I'll, but I'll take a stab at it. So, you know, it is. I, I've heard stories like this before. You're not the first person. And you said that your wife had always put a lot of pressure on you to get clean and to come back to the church. And that's fantastic, and she's right to do that. Uh, but I think there there could be a couple different things going on. I don't know which one because I'm not in your shoes. But one could be that y- your wife may have had unrealic- unrealistic expectations for what would happen to her life and her sense of well-being when she had a sober husband who went to Mass. And she may have had the idea that, hey, if, if, uh, if my husband's clean and sober and goes to Mass, then, then everything will be hunky-dory. And what I'm sure you know, and if you talk to people in the recovery community, they will tell you, is that life keeps happening to you even when you're sober. And you could say the same thing about being a Catholic. Life keeps happening to you even when you're in the state of grace. Mm. Um, and life in terms of relationship conflicts, uh, you know, money problems, uh, health problems, you, you name it, life continues to happen even when you're in the state of grace. 
Uh, and, you know, if you're in the state of grace, you're, you're better suited to deal with those problems, but the problems still, still come. And so if she had unfulfilled expectations about what would life be like when my husband was clean, sober, and sanctified, uh, there may be a lot of disappointment there. Now, you said something else that also just made me think, and I'm, I'm not trying to—I may be wrong, so don't take this the wrong way, because I, if I didn't hear you right, I'm not trying to accuse anyone. Um, it sounded like you've changed some of your personal habits at home in a way that your wife did not anticipate. So she thought, well, if he becomes Catholic and, and, and gets off of drugs, she didn't think this would be the result. Uh, maybe y'all used to watch movies together that you don't want to watch anymore. And there could be a couple things there. One of them could just be the inconvenience or perceived inconvenience on her part of, hey, this is what, well, isn't what I had in mind. Um, but I'll also caution, caution you, uh, whatever you do, don't come across as holier than thou. N- now that you've come to faith and you've come back to the church and you're clean and sober, if you, if you sort of wear that piety on your shirt sleeve, as it were, it's almost guaranteed to provoke resistance. Yeah. And uh, any time you come across to another human being as knowing what they should do, uh, you know, claiming the moral high ground, uh, people don't take well to that. I don't mm. take well to it. It doesn't work when I do it to other people. That is an almost surefire way to provoke resistance. Um, I think a better way is when you remember that the ultimate aim of the Catholic faith is not uh, to keep us from watching a certain kind of movie. Now, that doesn't mean I'm advocating that you watch anything. But the ultimate goal of the Catholic faith is not any particular form of abstinence. It is, in fact, the life of charity. So we practice abstinence, whether it's abstinence from drugs or abstinence from bad films, so that we can be kind, loving, virtuous, empathetic people. Those, those abnegations are not ends in themselves. They are ends ordered to uh, uh, the proper loving relationship to God and neighbor. And so be careful as you're reorganizing your moral life and your interior life that you don't put the cart before the horse, right? That you don't put, um, don't get your priorities uh, misaligned. And remember that the goal of Catholic practice is to love your wife better Right, not to tell her what's right. Mike, thank you so much for your call. Glad that you're checking in from St. Louis. Hey, if uh, if you have a question for Dr. David Anders, this would be a great time to call 833-288-EWTN. If you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program, 833-288-3986. Call to communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Here's uh, something from Kay who says, I am housebound but I have always wanted to be a Catholic. My mother taught me the rosary ages ago, and I pray the rosary every day. Recently, I read that all my prayers are meaningless without fulfilling a complete confession of my many, many sins and contrition and penance. Well, as a baptized Lutheran, I know that I belong to God, but I need more. What would you suggest, or am I just dreaming? Thanks, Kay. Okay, thanks, Kay. I really appreciate the question. So first of all, let's address this absolutely terrible piece of information that you were given, absolutely erroneous information Mm. that says that your prayers are worthless and meaningless unless you've had all the Catholic sacraments. That is just not true. There is no truth of that whatsoever at all. I mean, if you look at the saints of the Old Testament, for example, and not all of them were Hebrews, some of them were pagans, um, none of them had the benefit of the Catholic sacraments, and yet their prayers were sometimes very efficacious and answered by God, and they were beloved by him. 
So um, we, we couldn't come to the Catholic sacraments if, uh, if our prayers were not, uh, had no effect apart from the sacraments. I mean, how, how you have to have grace to come to faith at all, right? And the, and the prayer of the, of the sinner who is not yet baptized, who says, you know, God, please help me get me out of my dilemma. Um, and that, obviously, God's going to answer that prayer because that's the one that gets you to the baptismal font. Yeah. See? I mean, it, it's just false to say that prayer is of no value if you're not, uh, if you haven't been sacramentalized in the Catholic Church. Um, now, that doesn't mean that there's no point in being sacramentalized in the Catholic Church. You absolutely want to have the sacraments in the Catholic Church because the sacraments are a powerful means of enhancing our relationship to God. They're, they're, they're tangible, uh, objective evidence of the offer of grace. There's some place in our life we can go where we know for a certainty that grace is on offer because Christ has promised to meet us there. And so they, they're, they're wonderful helps in the life of, life of holiness, but they're not barriers to the life of holiness. And that's, that's the way it seems you've been taught, that like, you know, outside the sacraments there's no grace. That, that's not true. It's just that with the sacraments you have more manifest, plentifold grace, all right? And so we want to have them, but not because they're somehow a, a barriers to, to the grace of God. What should you do if you're housebound? Well, uh, probably the easiest thing to do would be to call up your local Catholic parish and explain that you have an interest in becoming Catholic and receiving Catholic sacraments, but you're unable to leave home. Is there a priest who could come visit you or a deacon who could come visit you? And my advice, if you try that, would be uh, don't uh, don't give up if the first time it doesn't work. I mean, I, sometimes there are parishes that are just way kind of overbooked, and you yeah. may have people of goodwill, but for some reason they just don't seem to get to you. Try several times and, and try neighboring parishes as well, but I guarantee you you will find someone who can come out and help you be Catholic. God bless you, Kay. Thanks so much uh, for your email. Call to communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Here's an email from Caesar who says, In the Catholic teaching, after I take my last breath, immediately I will be judged by Jesus Christ. So can I conclude that I will never be unconscious because of this doctrine? Cheers, Caesar. Um, yeah, Caesar. thanks. I really appreciate the question. So the Church does teach that immediately upon death we experience the particular judgment, and then we await the end of time for mm. the general judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the conscious existence of souls after death is a Catholic dogma. Um, can, does that mean that there is absolutely no period of unconsciousness? Well, I don't know that the, that the doctrine of the Church is that fine-grained, mm. and I've never died before. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I can't tell you precisely what it's like, just that there is a particular judgment relatively quickly after death, okay. right? Is it, is it instantaneous? Is there, is there any kind of temporal passage at all? Uh, you know, do you, do you get—I I don't know. I've never done it before. Okay. Appreciate that, and uh, thanks so much uh, for your email. If you missed any part of today's program, you can check out the encore of Call to Communion. That is tonight at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. And, of course, you can always check out the podcast by going to EWTN.com slash radio. Look for the word podcast there on the radio homepage. And then uh, just scroll down. We have those primary shows A to Z. So just uh, scroll down one or two levels and you'll see called to communion. And that's all you have to do. Here's an email now from John who says, Dr. Anders, I read some Catholic sources state that 1 Corinthians uh, 3, 
15 hints at purgatory, and yet my Catholic Bible explicitly states that this passage should not be read as support for purgatory. Also, I don't think I heard you use this passage to support purgatory. Could you please explain? Um, Yes, there is no doubt that there is a tradition of biblical commentary in the Catholic Church that that points to 1 Corinthians 3 as a kind of proof text for purgatory. That that definitely has happened in the history of exegesis. Um, I have never cited that text in defense of purgatory, and the reason why is that what I do on this show is I try to recapitulate for listeners the reasons that were compelling to me when I was coming into the Catholic Church. And when I was a Protestant seminarian, any time I ever heard Catholics refer to 1 Corinthians 3.15 in defense of purgatory, I was very unimpressed, because Mm. it seems to me evident from the context that that's not what Paul is talking about. Um, He's he's talking about people who build churches, apostles, who establish through their ministry some some work of the apostolate, and, uh, and the judgment on their works it's either burned up or not, is the, the communities that they founded. So it, I don't think it has anything to do uh. with um, the state of the soul after death. Now, you could make a really tenuous association and say, well, you know, the principle of God testing, right, and, and refining is applicable in more than one place. And I think that's true. So I think it's nothing. It's consistent with the doctrine of purgatory. I just don't think it's in any shape, form, or fashion a kind of slam dunk for the doctrine. Um, so I'm not surprised that your Catholic Bible has a footnote uh, to that effect. Um, and, you know, the, the way Catholics have read the Bible over the years has changed. And I think there's a lot more sensitivity now in exegesis to historical context. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, some, some of the fathers could get quite creative in the way they handled the Bible and, and, and treat it in a very ahistorical way. Uh, but uh, but that's not the way most Catholic commentators begin today. So I'm not surprised that your text has that has that commentary at the bottom. John, thanks so much uh, for your email. Back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Ron in Frisco, Texas, in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, listening on Guadalupe Radio, AM 910. Hey, Ron, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, I, I really appreciate your program, my wife and I. Oh, we're, we're Eucharistic ministers. We know visitations at the hospital. We have little bottles of holy water. What's the boundaries that a lay person can do with the holy water as far as with patients? I mean, can they put holy water on a patient or they can't? What they can bless or cannot bless? Yeah, yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. So holy water, by definition, is blessed, right? It's a sacramental, which means it's been blessed by a priest. So it participates, like all the sacramentals, in the intercessory life of the church. So you can make avid use of holy water. Now, what you don't want to do is use holy water in some kind of rite that suggests that you personally are conferring the blessing. Right? That You don't do that. That's yeah. what the priest does. Um, the one exception to that is parents can bless their children. There's a, there's a rite of blessing of parents of their children in the Catholic Book of Blessings, but that's kind of the only exception. Outside that, the priest is the proper subject for, to perform a blessing in the Catholic Church, uh, but the holy water's been blessed by a priest, so it's kind of like liquid blessing. How about that? Ron, thanks so much uh, for your call. Here's Mike in uh, Galveston, Texas, who says, Dr. Anders, how do you debate with Protestant biblical scholars on these three topics? Number one, 
James, the brother of Jesus type objections. Uh, He's saying here that E.P. Sanders and many others have written about this passage. Number two, the Immaculate Conception dogma. One would assume Protestant scholars have have studied Lourdes and Catherine Labore of the Miraculous Medal. And finally, transubstantiation. Again, I'm assuming Protestant scholars have researched miracles of the Eucharist, especially those validated by impartial and highly respected cardiologists and pathologists. Thanks, Mike in Galveston. Okay, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So of the topics that you raised and the evidence that you cited, Mm -hmm. uh, really only one of them was strictly biblical, and that would be the, the, uh, well, not even that, so all of them have a kind of historical reference. James, the brother of Jesus. Who is this James, the brother of Jesus? And there's nothing in the text of Scripture that requires us to hold that he's Jesus' biological sibling. Uh, And in fact, the text of Scripture suggests quite the contrary, that that Christ had uh, cousins. He had, uh, they were the children of Mary, the wife of Clopas, who was a cousin to the Blessed Virgin Mary, who were Jesus' kinsmen, referred to in Scripture as brothers, but not to indicate biological siblings. And that, that's all discernible from within the text itself. And when it comes to the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, uh, I don't think that the Immaculate Conception can be affirmed completely on the basis of Scripture alone, right? And, and see, that's the Protestant contention. They, they don't want to acknowledge any doctrine that you can't establish on the basis of Scripture alone. Um, and so they would reject the Immaculate Conception for that and other reasons. As a Catholic, I'm not bound by the doctrine of sola scriptura. So I freely admit that this is a doctrine that's been handed to me by sacred tradition. Uh, it's not inconsistent with the Bible, uh, but, it's, uh, but it's not, the Bible doesn't demand it as a, as a, as a conclusion. I would only know this in, in light of the, the further development of Mariology in, uh, in Catholic tradition. I don't think that uh, Marian apparitions um, at Lourdes or wherever else uh, are conclusive on this, and certainly wouldn't be for a Protestant theologian who who doesn't acknowledge the legitimacy of those things. Um, with respect to trans- transubstantiation, uh, this one we're a little bit more solid footing because the the identity of the consecrated species with the body of Christ is something that Christ himself says, right, that this is my body. And the transubstantiation is an inference from the doctrine of the real presence, the real presence is the doctrine that, that Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity are truly present in the Blessed Sacrament. Transubstantiation takes it a little bit further and asserts that it is no longer bread and wine. Because, see, there are some Protestant communions, like the Lutherans, that will say, well, yeah, Jesus is really there, body, blood, soul, and divinity, but so is bread and wine, that you have, you have both bread and Jesus. The Catholic position is that you stop having bread, you have something that looks like bread, but is actually Jesus. Hmm. And, and that would be from really from the words of Christ himself, who doesn't say, you know, herein lies my body. But he says, no, this is my body, and is is a perfect identity. Um, uh, And again, I I don't think that the Eucharistic miracles are are really determinative here. I I think it's the words of Christ that are determinative in the history of Catholic exegesis. Mike and Galveston, thanks so much for your email. Call to communion here on EWTN. Interesting email here, uh, Dr. David Anders from Brendan, who says, Sean McDowell from Biola University attempts to answer the question, how do you know what book should belong in the Bible? He offers five principles. Number one, was the book written by a prophet of God? Two, was the writer confirmed by acts of God? Three, did the message tell the truth about God? 
Four, does it come with the power of God? And five, was it accepted by the people of God? Well, I was amazed to read this because Sean is a Protestant. He admits that Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant believers have different books in their canon. He claims, Sean that is, he claims the similarities outweigh the differences. I have seen a number of different Protestant speakers attempt to offer similar principles to how we can establish the Bible's canon. Well, I have my own objections, but I was hoping to hear your thoughts. Thanks again, Brendan. Yeah, okay, so where did he get these criterion from? Did, did, uh, criteria, did God tell him uh, these are the criteria? Do the criteria possess divine authority? Or did he just pull them out of his ear? Looks like the ear. <laughs> and it looks to me like these just came out of the ear. I mean, yeah. who, who says that these are the criteria for determining the canonical books? Who says that? Well, uh, what is his name? Sean McDowell says. Sean McDowell, yeah. Well, does Sean McDowell have a divine authority? I don't think so. So why should I accept these criteria? All right. But but let's assume for the sake of argument that, that you know, that these are good criteria. I don't think they're good criteria, but let's say that they are. Um, well, the canon of the Bible that we have now fails though, by those criteria. Like, you can't get to the Protestant canon of the Bible using those criteria um, because several New Testament books and Old Testament books were not written by prophets. I mean, Luke wasn't a prophet, mm. to take one example. Mark wasn't a prophet. Matthew wasn't a prophet. We did name a few right off the top of the bat. Um, let's see. Uh, confirmed by acts of God. To the best of my knowledge, the, the, Luke didn't perform any miraculous acts to confirm his authority to write this text. Uh, and I could, you know, several other biblical books fall in the same category. Does it tell the truth about God? Well, that's question begging. That's assuming what you have to prove, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. how do you know what the truth about God is from the point of view of Christian revelation? <clears throat> well, I mean, it's what God has revealed about himself is the truth about God. So getting the question of what is a, a, a true revelation, that's really primary. You have to know what the proper revelation is before you can determine the truth about God. So this is a, this is a circular and question begging argument. Um, does it manifest the power of God? How would you measure that? It just seems like a totally unusable criterion. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, um, how are you going to measure the—what's the power meter on the book of Jude? <laughs> right? I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a fanciful criterion. Um, now, the, the only one that has some promise to it is accepted by the people of God. Now we're getting somewhere. Now we're getting somewhere. Uh, because accepted by the people of God is what ca the Catholic Church calls tradition. What has been handed down by the people of God throughout history, that's what we call tradition. So we're, we're beginning to get someplace with accepted by the power of God. But there's, a, there's another problem with Sean McDowell's criteria. There's a, there's a question he fails to raise that's really critical. Let's say, using these criteria or some other criteria, that I come up with a list of books that I conclude are, are uh, inspired by God. That, that alone doesn't get you to the Protestant doctrine of the Bible. I need an additional argument. I need an additional argument to say that not only are these books inspired, but that God intends them to be the rule of faith for the church. See, Protestants regard the Bible as sort of like the constitution that Jesus left for Christianity. That If you want to know what to believe and what to do, you look to the Bible. But, but nothing in the doctrine of inspiration, the doctrine that these books come from God, is sufficient to establish that that's their purpose. Let me show you what I mean by that. Let us say for the sake of argument that Jesus inspired a celestial cookbook. <laughs> and, the, and, and so you could turn to this cookbook, and man, you, following this recipe, you would get an absolutely heavenly 
mar- you know, lemon meringue pie. Mm-hmm. You know, the best the best pecan pie known to mankind. Man, you know, chocolate chip cookies to to die and go to heaven for. Okay. Well, what would be the function or purpose of such a book? Probably to cook. Doesn't follow that it would be the rule of faith for the church. And so, when you look at the actual texts of Scripture, all of them give patent evidence for their 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 functional purpose. So, you know, St. Paul, for example, writes to the Corinthians and says, I'm writing to you, Corinthians, to address the following problems. Well, that doesn't look like he said, I'm writing to you, Corinthians, so that I can give you, like, chapter 7 in the church's rule of faith. No, I'm writing to you, Corinthians, because in your local community, these are the specific problems that you have, and that's what I'm writing to address. Nothing in the text itself suggests that Paul was conscious of contributing to a collection that was intended by God to be the church's constitution. You need some additional argument to get there, to come to that conclusion about what the Bible is, because the Bible itself doesn't say that about itself. The Catholic position is that God did not intend the Bible to be the Church's rule of faith, that it's not the Constitution for Christianity. It doesn't, it's not the be-all and end-all that tells you everything you need to believe and everything you need to do. We do think it's inspired, and we think that its purpose is to serve the people of God for their theological reflection, edification, and corporate prayer life. So, you know, the book of Psalms is quite evidently a hymn book. These are the songs of the church. This animates the the prayer life of the people of God. But you better not look to the Psalms if you want to find out how to elect a bishop, or how to appoint a bishop, rather, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Or how to perform a baptism, or, or, you know, who can celebrate the Mass. Psalms isn't going to tell you that. That's a good book. It's an important book. It's critical to the prayer life and the spirituality of the people of God. But you have to let it do its job and not force it into a straitjacket for which it wasn't designed. And so forth with all the other books. And so even if you arrive at a conclusion of inspiration, as Sean McDowell thinks that he does, that doesn't get you to the Protestant doctrine of the Bible, the fully orbed Protestant doctrine of the Bible. You need some additional argument. Now, here we're running out of time, but I, I have read tons of Protestant apologetics about the doctrine of Sola Scriptura, and I've never seen a compelling argument for why we should regard the Bible as the rule of faith. And that's where we have to leave it. Uh, Brendan, thanks so much uh, for your email. Dr. David Anders, hope it all goes well for you there in Omaha. We'll be praying for your safe travels. Praying for your safe travels back here to Birmingham, buddy. Oh, absolutely. All right. Don't forget, we do this program Monday through Friday, normally here in the studio at 2 p.m. Eastern with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Check out the podcast at EWTN.com forward slash radio and then look for the word podcast on behalf of our fantastic team in birmingham and omaha i'm tom price along with dr david anders thanks for joining us we'll see you next time here on ewtn's call to communion have a great day and god bless